Hello, this is Mike Burek, your host and producer of Krenitsia, The Well, a podcast series about interesting and remarkable Ukrainians from around the world. Today is Thursday, July 1st, 2021. Our guest for this episode is Alexander Motil, who is a professor of political science at Rutgers University, Newark, New Jersey, and also an adjunct professor with Columbia University in New York. And I do want to point out that today's episode is a special edition produced for the Ukrainian Weekly, the newspaper that has been serving the Ukrainian community around the globe since 1933. Welcome, Professor. How are you? Very well. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for coming on Kodinitsa today. So, Professor... You have done so much over the years in the Ukrainian community, it's hard to pick a place to start. But what I'd like to do to begin is to get some background on your family from Ukraine, and then to talk a bit about when your parents came, where they settled in the U.S., and then where you grew up and uh, your early education. Okay, thank you. Well, my relatives, my parents' parents and grandparents, uh, they were all born in and born and lived in Western Ukraine, specifically in Galicia or Halutuna. Uh, so my father's family is from a small village or from a cluster of small villages about 40 miles north of Lviv. And my mother's family is largely from a small town uh, and some neighboring villages roughly south southeast of Lviv. Uh, he's from a, his the name of his village is Tadani, and the name of my mother's town is Peremyślane or Przemyślane in Polish. Um, so that's where the family originated. That's where they lived through the 20th century, and that's where the remnants of the family still live uh, to a large degree. Although, of course, in the last 30, 40 years, Many of them have moved to cities, specifically Lviv. A number have emigrated and live in the United States. As to my parents themselves, um, my father came to this country in 1949. He had left Ukraine as the Soviet army was approaching 44, summer of 1944. And by early 45, he wound up in Germany and then spent three to four years in a displaced person camp in Munich. And then when the United States opened its doors, um, he came to the U.S. My mother's story is a little more complicated. Her father actually came to this country, to the United States, in the summer of 1913 and settled in Fall River, Massachusetts, where after working as in, in a variety of textile-related businesses, he finally opened up his own business. It was a shoe shop, uh, which was an extension of the home within which they lived. His wife came over in early 1914. My mother was born in December of 1914. Two more kids came in the later teens. And then in 1922, she died uh, and is buried in Fall River. And the father took the three kids and returned home to Peremyshlane, to Halutuna, in 1924, where my mother and her two siblings, plus a whole bunch of other siblings, uh, grew up in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, her brother, Michael, came to this country in 1938 
and then wound up working for the Civilian Conservation Corps for two years out in Oregon. And then he joined the Army and served in the United States, and then was eventually uh, discharged in 1946, developed a mental condition, a mental illness, and was institutionalized in 1951. My mother's sister, Stefania, lived in New York, and she eventually had a, well, she had a son from an earlier marriage, and eventually she passed away about 10 years ago. My mother, meanwhile, came to this country in 1947, after having left Halichina in 1944, like all the other Ukrainians. But unlike the others, she settled in Slovakia for some two years, two, three years. And then having an American passport was able to be repatriated to the United States. Naturally, by then she had forgotten English. Uh, so she settled on the Lower East Side in New York City, together with her brother, Michael, and eventually Stefania joined them. And then she met my father in 1949, and they got married in 1950. So that's the story of my parents and their general relatives. Um, as to where I fit into this, my, uh, I have a sister who was born in 1950. I was born in 1953, and the two of us, we attended St. George's Ukrainian Catholic School on, the, on 6th Street off 3rd Avenue. As a matter of fact, we lived literally right across the street from the school, although I, when I was born, we lived on East 10th Street in a very small apartment with the bathroom in the hall and a bathtub in the kitchen. Um, we both attended St. George's in any case. I eventually then went to high school to a Jesuit school called Regis for four years. And after that, in 1971, uh, went to Columbia University, where I completed my bachelor's, my master's, and eventually my PhD. Alex, I understand that maybe it was last year, the year before, you taught a course about the Ukrainian village or Ukrainians in New York City at Columbia University. Is that correct? Yes, I've taught the course for four semesters over the last three, four years. And I'm slated to teach the course again this coming semester in the fall at Columbia. It's, it's a course that's sponsored by the Harriman Institute and its Ukrainian Studies program. So what has been the reaction of your young students to that course? Because you grew up there, and I spent a lot of time there myself. But I wonder what the younger generation thinks about the Ukrainian village, which for the most part, there are some remnants of it today, but much of it has passed away. So what, what has been the reaction of your students? Well, the students in general are very enthusiastic, although, again, I, sh I should be straightforward with you and your audience. Uh, the numbers are never sizable. It's always two, three, four, five, six students who attend the course. It's roughly in that range. And remarkably enough, contrary to my expectations that Ukrainian-American kids would be taking the course in order to learn about their roots, the vast majority of the students have been Americans. I mean, straightforward Americans, not Ukrainian-Americans. And for them, this is just a kind of exotic neighborhood 
They know something about the Ukrainian presence, but mostly what they knew they do know is that it's cool, it's hip, and those sorts of things. Uh, so when I revealed to them that there were a whole series of very interesting immigrations that settled in this neighborhood, first the Germans in the latter half of the 19th century, then the Jews in the first half of the 20th, then Ukrainians and Poles in the middle of the 20th, and then last but not least, artists, young people, Puerto Ricans and others in the middle and late part of the 20th century. I mean, their eyes are open and they then come to appreciate that this neighborhood, this relatively small, compact neighborhood is in some ways a microcosm of New York in general, because the course doesn't just focus on the ethnic groups. It also talks about the social trends, the artistic trends, the political trends, the geography, and how developments within New York shaped developments within this particular region, and how, of course, this area maintained its relations with either Germans or Jews or Ukrainians or Puerto Ricans or others over, over time. We usually end the course with the question, can the Ukrainian institutions in this neighborhood, which exist, and they're, you know, they're they're more or less thriving. I mean, they're youth organizations, banks, churches, a museum, and so on. Can they continue to exist even though the number of Ukrainians living in that particular region is now roughly in the several hundred. Uh, most people have moved out for a variety of reasons, prim and recently primarily for monetary ones. It's become very expensive to live there. So can these institutions in the long run sustain themselves, even though their constituents, their consumers, as it were, now live in Brooklyn, Queens, uh, Staten Island, or New Jersey? Anyway, that's the question, and I'm not sure what the answer is. Alex, let's turn a bit to your career and professional interests. You're well known as a political scientist, a historian, and also as a poet, a writer, and an artist painter, as well as a translator. How do you manage to juggle all of that? <laughs> Gosh, you know, I... The, the answer simply is that I, I, I have these various interests and I tend to get bored relatively quickly with certain things. So, you know, I may write an article, an academic article, it's done, and then I'm just exhausted. I want to move on to do something else because it invigorates me. I do something else, let's say a painting, and then I feel the need to write some fiction. And I kind of hop and jump from topic to topic, from area to area. But the bottom line is, I mean, because your question concerns the amount of stuff that I produce, and, and I noticed that you delicately avoided the question of qualities by focusing on the question of quantity. So we'll just leave that to, to the audience to decide for themselves. But I happen to be fairly well organized. I mean, perhaps even obsessively so. And I have in mind to complete a book or an article or a poem uh, in a certain period of time, I'm usually able to do that. Uh, I maintain my own deadlines. I maintain the deadlines that people set for me. Um, and as a friend of mine once remarked, genius is 90% organization and 10% actual genius, or rather accomplishment is 90% organization and 10% genius. Now, I don't know how, how I fare on the genius scale, but I do know that my organization is pretty impressive. And if it's really 90% of what it takes to accomplish certain things, I suspect that's, that accounts for the fact that I've been able to produce a fair number of things in, as you said, scholarship, poetry, fiction, painting, as well as translation. 
Last but not least, I enjoy it. That's really, I think, ultimately the bottom line. I enjoy lots of stuff. And I enjoy doing lots of things. And they give me a charge. And each of them gives me a different kind of charge. The thrill I get from painting is very different from the thrill I get from writing an article. It's a different source of the soul or the spirit that gets affected. So it's it's a pleasure, right? It's ultimately a pre- pleasure as well. Alex, let's talk about your latest fiction book, Pitun's Last Stand, an entertainment about the fall of Russia which came out, I believe, in March of this year. Why did you pick this particular topic? Well, of course, Petun is just a standard for everybody's favorite dictator, Vladimir Putin of Russia. I mean, the background to the book is actually is, is relatively straightforward. I'm one, of the, I'm one of many people in the world, I suspect, who really, really detests Putin. And when I say detest, I say that in a kind of almost obsessive way. I actually have two novels that deal with Putin. This is in addition to the third one, which you just mentioned. I have four sizable canvases that I've painted and sold over the last few years that satirize Putin. And I've, of course, I've written tons of blogs, articles, and things like that dealing with Putin as well. And I detest the man for all sorts of reasons, not the least of which is that he's a dictator, he's an authoritarian, he's an imperialist. He started wars against Ukraine, Georgia, and other countries. And last but not least, he's really bad for the Russians themselves. Uh, so I, I have an animus toward him. And it's one of my burning desires that he leave the historical stage. When I, 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 It occurred to me a couple of months ago as I was thinking about, I forget exactly what, my career, I guess, that of the 40 or so years that I've been in Russian, Ukrainian, and Soviet studies, he's been around for over 20. So he's been, he's dominated my perception of Russia and the post-Soviet states. And I'm just so tired of the man. So in addition to criticizing him and dealing with him analytically in my academic pieces and my policy pieces, as I said, I also try to deal with him in in fiction as well as in painting. But there, the approach is satirical. Now, in this last book, the last book, again, I wrote it last summer and then revised it in the course of the next few months before the year was through. And it was motivated by, Putin must have been in the headlines. And once again, I just felt this obsessive need to somehow or other deal with him and, and exercise him from my soul. So I wrote the book. Uh, this one is partly satirical. It's, it hopes to be funny as well. So there's a satirical element, there's a comical element, but there's also a very serious element. Because as the subheading writes, it's about the fall of Russia. And it envisions a period sometime in the near future where civil war and war breaks out within Russia, but also war breaks out between Russia and its neighbors. The regime falls. Putin, or if you like, Petun, escapes, and he is then encountered, he is then met accidentally in southern France by two journalists, an American and a Brit. And then the adventures begin, and Putin invites them, or Petun invites them to join him on a train ride from Zurich to to Petersburg, which would mimic the train ride that Lenin made 
in mid-1917 on the verge of the Russian Revolution. And it's on that particular train ride that a variety of characters appear, adventures, misadventures, and then finally a somewhat explosive conclusion takes place. Professor, thank you for that description of the book, and I hope our audience will uh, get a copy of it. It is available on Amazon. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but I did want to get some final observations from you about Ukraine as we move into the uh, celebration of its 30th anniversary of independence in August. What do you think will happen in the next 30 years in Ukraine? Well, gosh, that's that's very hard to predict, mostly because, uh, to a large degree, because so much depends on what happens in Russia. So, you know, the two, for better or for worse, Ukraine and Russia, I mean, Ukraine is kind of tied at the, at the hip to Russia. Um, so if Russia develops in a positive direction, that'll have positive consequences for Ukraine. If it develops in a very negative direction, that could have very serious negative consequences for Ukraine. So as you can see, so the picture is complicated. And of course, Ukraine's future also depends on Eastern Europe's future, on the European Union's future, the US, and so on and so forth. So it's a little hard. But if we hold those things relatively constant, or if we kind of bracket them or ignore them or pretend that they're not going to impinge on Ukraine too badly, I think Ukraine will continue progressing you know, steadily but surely in the right direction. I mean, uh, I, in, you know, I've, I've had my quarrels with a variety of Ukrainian presidents and politicians. But if you look at the country as a whole, what strikes me as, as, if, you, as you, if you compare it today's Ukraine with the Ukraine of 30 years ago, is that it is a radically different country. And it's a radically better country than it used to be 30 years ago. Now, Ukraine still has a long way to go before it becomes Switzerland, right? Um, But that said, it's no longer what it used to be. It's no longer Soviet Ukraine. It's no longer an impoverished, immiserated, miserable place with no future. It's now a place that actually does have a future uh, with a talented population that is working actively to give it the future it deserves. So I'm, I'm not sure if I expect any major breakthroughs, you know, sort of a radical transition, 180 degree about turn, which would radically improve Ukraine. Uh, but I think Ukraine will continue to progress slowly but surely in the way that it has over the last 30 years, and which has been more or less effective. I mean, again, we tend to criticize Ukraine because it's not what we want it to be, uh, but we tend to forget that it is no longer that which it was. And so when one compares it to where it was, or when one compares it to its neighbors, uh, Belarus, Moldova, the Caucasian states, Russia, the Central Asian states, I mean, Ukraine looks like a model student. So I expect that to continue. Now, there may be, you know, sort of leaps forward. And I think those would depend partly on whether, you know, Western pressure is heeded by Ukrainian policymakers, depends on the condition of the world economy and Ukraine's place in it. But when it comes to Ukraine per se, I'm relatively optimistic, cautiously optimistic, let's put it that way. But as I said, so much depends on Russia. And if Russia continues to be imperialistic, aggressive, authoritarian, that will mold Ukraine in 
some, in some ways positively, in many ways possibly negatively. If alternatively Russia, after Putin leaves, embarks on a path, let's call it more or less democratic, then that will be a real shot in the arm for Ukraine as well. Uh, and then my cautiously optimistic prognosis might become optimistic. Professor Martil, thank you so much for joining us on Krenice today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. I have been speaking with Professor Alexander Martil, who is a professor of political science at Rutgers University in Newark, New Jersey, and also an adjunct professor with Columbia University in New York, as well as being a historian, poet, writer, artist, painter, and translator. And this is Mike Burek, your host and producer of Kodinitsia, The Well, a podcast series about interesting and remarkable Ukrainians from around the world. And again, today's episode was produced specifically for the Ukrainian Weekly, the newspaper that has been serving the global Ukrainian community since 1933. Until next time, that's all for now.